For most of the time I've been sick, I haven't been able to cry. It's as if my body hasn't had the spare energy to process grief, or really any emotions. After all, how can you process a trauma when the trauma is ongoing? I have an illness that, officially at least, has no cure. There are promising experimental treatments, sure, but there is not a single FDA-approved treatment. Most of us don't even get palliative care for the symptoms. The quality of life of this illness is so low that for a while, I didn't know how many people lived with the reality that there are no treatments. Now I realize that they don't live with that reality. I remain convinced it's an impossible reality to accept, one that would tear a person apart. I have never lived with that reality. And although my life, youth, social life, vocation, ability to make art has been stolen from me, I haven't grieved much. I have to smile through physical and emotional pain. My body has been an affectless automation. At one point in my illness, when I got a lot worse, probably from my brainstem compression becoming worse, I started to tolerate listening to music a lot less. Listening to music was one of the last things that tied me to who I was before illness. Since then, I have become more and more vacant. And given that I have not been offered much in the way of palliative care, I have opted to distract myself from pain and boredom by scrolling the internet, consuming forgettable and numbing content using a phone as a narcotic. I have become someone that would have been unrecognizable to the ambitious artist and musician I was years ago. I've become the worst possible thing, boring. I've had some moderate upswings from some of the experimental treatments I've done recently. And every time my body starts to recover, grief threatens to overwhelm me. I start to tear up. I start to have emotional responses to music. I start to reckon with the enormity of what I've lost over the past three years. I have turned away from this grief to survive. I've had to compartmentalize. But mere survival is something that I now have a strong distaste for. Every time I get a tiny taste of health or normality, I become less apathetic less okay with a life of compromise, more fueled with rage. Much of the time, I've slouched toward oblivion, curled up into the tiny space afforded to me by my illness, but now that my body has started to awaken, I am hurled into awareness of the gulf between what I wanted and what I became. A lot of generic advice offered to people with chronic illnesses about coping has been almost perfectly tailored to elicit the worst possible response from me in particular. The quasi-Buddhist, quasi-nihilist advice to simply adjust oneself constantly to one's circumstances, no matter how bad they get, always turned my stomach. It's not an exaggeration to say that I have probably stayed alive and stayed looking for experimental solutions for my illness only by taking the exact opposite approach that of never accepting this unjust and terrible reality. 
but perpetually deferring reality comes at a cost. When survival means mere survival, not growth or thriving, I oppose it. When it means vegetating at the lowest step of the hierarchy of needs, I oppose it. When it means wasting away in the dark for years with no solid hopes of recovery, I oppose it. When it means accepting being forgotten by the entirety of the world, I oppose it. When it means accepting mediocrity and radiating oblivion, I oppose it. Is it fruitless and vain to oppose an evolutionarily conserved instinct? Probably. But who cares? It's also fruitless to always hope for a cure in every breathless press release about ME-CFS research, and yet we don't fault people for trying to find hope. So don't fault me for trying to find my way away from the magnetism of false hope. It's your choice how to interpret what I say about survival, to what extent I mean this literally. It's all contingent on what realities and situations there are available to choose from. Of course, I'm not a philosophical pessimist. If there's a chance at life that is more than mere survival, a good chance of healing, I choose that over death. But is there? There is one hypothesis among ME-CFS scientists that the illness is a homogenous response to heterogeneous stressors, a sort of hibernation. Specifically, dour, a state of hypometabolism found in C. elegans. But in a sense, my body is intelligent for having chosen mere survival over options like heart attack, cancer, etc. That might be normal responses to the same stressors my body has encountered. Environmental toxins, infections, etc. I find it plausible, based not just on the available scientific evidence, but also based on my experience. It does feel like my body has traded between quantity and quality of life. It does seem like being sick has made me experience time in geologic phases slash increments. It is unnerving to realize how quickly one can adapt to that, how quickly one begins to accept sleepwalking rapidly through highlight reels of weeks and then months and years. And that is part of my reason for wanting to actively oppose whatever in me is willing to compromise with that and do whatever it has to do to cope. Mere survival isn't waking, living, dying, or dreaming, but a painful, liminal state directly between life and death. On some nights sleeping out in the desert, I feel like I'm at the edge of, or even in the middle of, a giant ocean. The wind becomes white noise, becomes pixels, becomes waves breaking on the shore. The darkness could be ocean. And instead of the messiness of any conventional method of suicide, I like to imagine I could just wade out into the ocean and disappear forever. I've been fascinated by Christianity for a little while, not just as an outsider, not just through some kind of academic anthropological lens, but as a different kind of encounter. 
Christianity means to me is represented in the geometry of the cross, Christ's unremitting orthogonality to the world. In Nietzsche's view, Christianity's opposition to worldliness was born out of a hatred for life due to a kind of envy for those who are overflowing with it. But if any aspect of my illness is due to exponentially increasing pollution and environmental toxicity, which is a scientific question that still needs to be answered, but I have good reason to think this for reasons I'll answer in another post, the idea of worldliness takes on a new dimension of meaning. If the modern world has contributed to making me very ill, ghostlike, Furthermore, the social world has left me in the margins. Then is this opposition to that world really slavish envy and resentment? Is an opposition to the worlds that are poison worlds that are now overtaking the earth, which is the ground for all being, really something born out of weakness? Is a vehement opposition to a form of being in the world that means accepting one's slow senescence at the hands of capital, destroyers of the earth, Moloch, all of those animated bodies of the unliving that populate our new world, really the same as a resentment-born rejection of the earth and the body? I am rejecting survival in favor of life in its fullness or death in its open promises. I am rejecting the worlds in favor of the earth and in favor of the potential worlds that don't marginalize me. While I may not follow many of Christianity's tenets, the worldliness that may have been worth defending against its asceticism and the vibrant, healthy bodies that may have been opposed rhetorically by Christianity may no longer exist. We may not for very long have a world left to defend. All that's left, then, is the perpendicularity of the cross. When you drive west, out of the city of Las Vegas, into the desert at night, it feels like dropping off the face of the earth. The city's glimmering lights quickly drop away, and one drives into what seems at first to be a vast emptiness. When your eyes adjust, you find yourself in a new world. I, I think maybe I should zoom out and talk a little bit, not like life story, but a little bit about like my experience of illness and how it happened and also let you do that too, to kind of totally. circle back to that question of like faith and suffering because yeah, I mean, so basically I got, I was healthy most of my adolescent and first part of my adult life until about age 21 and I was a musician and artist and you know uh, also like you know when I was in high school pretty athletic and a runner pretty active and when I was 21 working a summer job you know on break from Hampshire I uh 
got a tick bite. I was working outside tree nursery and got, you know, like a fever, rat, bullseye rash, pretty like typical acute Lyme case. Um, it's just kind of laid out for a while thinking and that this was just like kind of an acute illness and went to my primary care doctor. I mean, this is a pretty straightforward case of Lyme. I didn't have to get like esoteric tests or anything like there's some controversial stuff about like, like that in the Lyme world, but I'm talking about just like, I don't know. I got, I got bit by a tick. I got a rash. I got a fever um, immediately. And I went over the weekend and I went to my doctor, you know, that Monday and my primary doctor and she, you know, diagnosed me clinically, but also did the blood work. Um, both the two tiered tests for Lyme, both were positive and started me on antibiotics. Kind of like, Gradually, the antibiotics helped with the acute symptoms, and I felt like I had recovered, but kind of gradually, a lot of symptoms returned, uh, and, and, and new symptoms came um, to the extent where by the fall, when I was coming to college, I actually thought I had gotten reinfected because I wasn't really thinking about the concept of chronic Lyme or like MECFS or chronic diseases after I was thinking, Oh, um, I must've just gotten, you know, another tick bite. I mean, it's New England. And because a lot of the symptoms were similar, I had extreme brain fog. I was like, I remember it was just like walking around. Um, I wasn't as fatigued or like, I wasn't bed bound like I am now, but I was just walking around and feel like just kind of like, I like some kind of like dementia haze and just like forget things that I like just like lose items and in a way that uh, I could say like lose items or lose things and people people would be like yeah you know I, I get that but I mean like it was way more extreme than anything I'd experienced from like um like I'm surprised that I made it through any of those semesters of college um for one like uh with the amount of stuff i was losing and losing track of and um just like sheer confusion i would experience sometimes to kind of like try and speed run this because i've gone over like the full story on back episodes i ended up having to like i also got worsened insomnia too but and fatigue eventually um and uh, abnormal response to exercise I ended up having to drop out of college with actually still have uh, one semester left for finishing an undergrad and um, classic Hampshire situation yeah it's kind of funny because I really did like I did all the coursework for Div 3 uh, which is our thesis and all I had left to do is the final project, but even that I'd done like a lot of work on. And it's kind of, if I'd actually just not submitted work early, as a side note, I probably could have just like stretched it out and then submitted something and been like, yeah, this is like my final, like, 
yeah even even despite being sick i probably did enough work that if i just not submitted it during the first semester i would have been able to submit it as a final project but i i don't know how much good a degree would do me while i'm like chronically ill i mean i'm getting like ssi and not like any jobs based on degree no but it is a weird thing and then just like like a irony yeah and then like socially there's so many people who's like shows i want to see or like final like um projects and who i wanted to stay in touch with who i immediately kind of lost touch with because i just wasn't at hampshire physically and i mean you know pre-pandemic we hung out with people in person and but uh losing so losing touch with that at that point was like it was socially really hard but also there's something like um where i kind of think i um i was just like always in denial to an extent i i was like i'm never going to become bad bad i'm never going to become like yeah so at some point i became like aware that my symptoms matched up with MECFS. I became aware that like some of the like subsequent like courses of antibiotics weren't really helping me. So I was starting to like discount the idea that it was due to chronic Lyme and think more like that this was in, indeed some kind of like Lyme had been a trigger for something like um, the way viruses can be a trigger for post-viral illnesses like like long COVID or like um MECFS or but also like that Lyme could be and I, I looked into that I got diagnosed with MECFS by an MECFS doctor it's essentially like seen as a metabolic disease that they don't know that much about an immunological and metabolic disease and I got a thorough workup but you know also like a, a not great prognosis like a like we'll we'll do what we can to help you like experimental off-label treatments and stuff but like uh you know kind of like read between the lines is that you know i'm sorry you're probably kind of in for the long the long haul um you basically fucked is was kind of the thing right yeah i mean i had like a a nice like kind of but very like New York um, doctor. I mean, in New York, that like she, she says like she she says blunt stuff, but then also like works like I'm sorry into almost like every like kind of visit because like you know I'm I'm sorry. I wish there's more to I could do because like yeah, I mean, she's also a researcher and she's aware of how fucked the situation is. And I also, so I was also kind of in denial and I like, I I will say that with the social death thing, like I was bringing up earlier, like I did push away some friends a little bit because I didn't want to like almost make this real by having people come visit me when I was sick. I wanted to like quickly get over this illness and then get back to, I wanted to compartmentalize those two parts of my life. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you at every point felt like that, but. Oh, very, very much so. Yeah, totally. It's just like it's it's like it feels like it would make it real. Like if like if they had come visit me, that it might make it real when it hadn't become real yet. Like you're speaking it into existence in like a way where you're like concretizing 
the reality yeah. that you're inhabiting in that way where it's like you don't want to you dare not speak the name of this truth yeah. right because it's like you know and then you have that uh social expectation of now you're slotted into into a different kind of uh place yeah. in people's you know assessment of you and what's going on right. with you and and this is the irony because i was talking about how like i mean there's a lot of ideas about like chronic illness where people think like people make it their identity and they they want to like be sick and they like keep themselves sick for this reason and i can say like through what i know of chronically ill people i mean there there may be exceptions and if there are exceptions there are exceptions that prove the rule and, and i'm really confident in saying that they're they're major outliers maybe maybe there's some like I don't know. Maybe there's some like loud, like strident people on Tumblr who like actually love identifying with their illness. I'm not even saying that they probably don't, but like my point is that if people are like finding this pattern, I think they're wrong and they're, they're, they're finding some like, you know, outrage bait, but, um, and it, it doesn't fit what I've seen of just kind of normal people with this illness, just, yeah and um like you know people that have been sick since like 1980 something sometimes that you know like before the internet there it, it wasn't social contagion it it was yeah yeah i don't know i've gone into the history of this disease and other episodes i would recommend it like the lake tahoe outbreak but um people should definitely the, listen to that by the way yeah the irony is that people really think sometimes that people like lean into their illness identity and and i did the opposite to detrimental like just denying it like being like i mean you don't want to be like i am a sick person you want to be like i am a musician i'm an artist um, i'm a real sentient full living person not this diminished wounded creature that you turn into yeah and not like you know sick with something that like most people don't really understand and is like kind of diagnostically like in a liminal space but no one wants that i mean you know and again maybe a few people do but like it's very much the exception that yeah like proves the rule um and i mean i imagine you experienced something similar but i very much did not want to I made some practical concessions, but it took me a while, and I very much did not want to like have this identity, and that's part of why I like initially pushed people away. Is like I didn't think like I could, I didn't want to be like think of myself as like a disabled person or a sick person. I didn't want to make it permanent. I didn't want to speak it into existence. I didn't want to like. It seemed like it didn't seem like. I mean, for one thing, like the way it this could be a whole other tangent the way illness and disability is seen in like modernity i think is like there's less room for like like convalescence and it's not like i don't know like a victorian era thing where there are like many novels about like a sick person convalescing we live in a like really fast society and that you just kind of like aren't a person anymore and that's very unpleasant i so I was in denial and I would say to this day, I'm a little bit in denial, but I'm, I'm in denial. Like on the, if I am 
out of touch with reality. It's it, it's almost in being like too optimistic about being able to change my illness rather than like the the other way around of like the stereotype of people like uh, leaning into it or, yeah, or wanting. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I push past limits. Um, I, I, you know, try and find anything that might help, but I mean, it's important nuance to consider because I do, I do want to talk about like the spiritual and mental like horrors of going through illness. And that's important to talk about. It's just important to, you know, talk about like, what are the concrete things that, that end up triggering that before you talk about like the, the spiritual heart, like, um, you know, what, what's the, what is the illness? Um, yeah. And so in my case, like, sorry, hold on a sec. I'm just going to take some medication actually to help with this. Just, yeah, I'm of course still in a lot of pain, not just from surgery. I was before surgery, but, um, and I have a nasal spray prescribed with ketamine that helps with, um, I just figured, you know, why not? But you know, give all the info live. Let's yeah. Uh, um, this, this, this is the genuine, genuine article right here. Ketamine uh, that helps with um, sound sensitivity. It helps with like um, I mean, I mean, the way it kind of like counteracts glutamate in the brain helps with everything from sound sensitivity to like um, it also helps with like all types of pain, not just like neuropathic, but like. I mean, they give it for fucking, you know, a broken leg or uh, sometimes they're like a migraine or surgery. Eh, not enough, but like, yeah. So I'm taking a few squirts of that. Um, and... Unfortunately, that's not something you can do around the clock for a lot of reasons. So it's like something I use for special occasions sometimes, like doing a podcast or listening to music. And anyway, so I was like having a, it'll probably take a minute to kick in, but it's having a, um, a lot of denial, but I was, I was trying to solve this. I mean, I'm a humanities, I have a humanities background. I, the only science course I took at Hampshire was um, an agricultural science course that was like for my required credit. Honestly, it was, it was a good course. And I think I like, like, <laughs> honestly, like this is a surprisingly engaging course, but, and that professor was very cool. Uh, I think like Larry Winship, I don't know. For any of the Hampshire science people uh, following, do do you have to take a, any Hampshire science courses? By the way, I remember taking the only thing I remember taking is like something about the science of humor, <laughs> which was at like I don't know eight in the morning, and I would go there and it was just like an absolute nothing, just just one one big nothing. Word. It seemed like well, maybe I, the easiest write off for me. Yeah, well, I I um actually kind of regret not knowing more science when getting sick. I mean, it's kind of like, no, I mean, I love um, music. I love um, photography, but 
I kind of saw, I, I didn't realize how unsolved a lot of these problems are in medicine. So I, I saw it as a separate domain, like all do what I enjoy and be a musician. I never th- thought I'd have to become really familiar with any of it. Like, and biohack myself out of a, a corner. Certainly. Totally. But, um, so I just definitely didn't focus much on it. I've had some friends that did some intense science study. So I'm sure I even knew someone who did a study on Lyme for like a div three, uh, thing like, I mean, actual lab work on oh, wow. like Lyme spirochetes. Um, after I dropped out of Hampshire and got diagnosed with MECFS eventually, um, I just kept getting worse gradually. And sometimes with like acute things like, a, you know, a flu or something like that on top of the already, not just Lyme, but like series of different infections that knocked me down even harder or just like whatever we, I mean, there, there's to tell the story is like I knew it at the time would I can't add in like uh, I don't want to necessarily add in like knowledge or theories I have for why I got worse because I didn't like the the thing to emphasize is that I didn't really like know what was happening scientifically my um, the absolute best doctors I interacted with are going on like doing a lot of like off-label treatments and testing It's, it's pretty experimental so so they couldn't exactly tell me exactly what was happening. I knew, I knew that I had this syndrome that was like poorly understood, um, poorly treated, um, you know, by this point, And that was very limiting. Like, I think that's kind of the central feature of MCFS before I got some of these like spinal problems, I didn't have like a ton of, pain except for on like muscle pain on exertion but like it became it was like very limiting i uh, i didn't know about the like exertion thing being a problem exercise being a problem crashing after that like that is like kind of metabolic disease so i tried to push through um i tried to just like run and so besides the cognitive thing that was and insomnia that was like major um just like that I, I just became more and more limited cognitive energy, um, physical energy, like what, and there's no meds that help you push through it as well. I mean, that's idiosyncratic. That's some esoteric knowledge, but maybe, um, exoterically there's no meds that help, And it, it would be irresponsible to like really say that there's any kind of, really standardized treatment you could rely on. There's no FDA approved treatments for MECFS um, or long COVID for that matter. And so your energy becomes like really limited. You have to ration it. That's an unpleasant thing. If you are kind of like a young person who wants to, to not think in that, in that way to not like ration to not, um, I don't know what's the like term in T.S. Eliot's proof rock, measure out your life in coffee spoons or whatever. Um, so, you know, I might've worked some part-time, very part-time work, like a year after I first got sick in the summer, but like very part-time 
very flexible. I found like even doing that gardening work was like becoming too much. And then like at some point I was basically just housebound and like spend a lot of time in bed. I could walk to my room and around the house, but not like, and I could go out to appointments, but I wasn't like, that was like about the limit of my energy. Um, so I, it, that's probably like considered moderate MECFS because there's levels way worse than that. But that's, I mean, that's pretty fucking limiting. Like, and, and socially, I mean, like, you don't really, I didn't love the idea of like having one of my friends, even, even the ones who I care about enough that could maybe come to understand over from Hampshire and then being like, um, yeah, damn, you live like this, you know? Yeah, to- totally. <laughs> you know, they're, you know, a, a friend, I don't know, friends going to like Prague and like traveling the world or, you know, um, continuing to do like great art and music work or whatever or you know have relationships and i'm just like literally um sick living in my parents house and doing nothing interesting other than you know going out to get iv treatments or whatever like semi-regularly specifically I cherished a romantic impulse towards death. Yet at the same time, I required a strictly classical body as its vehicle. A peculiar sense of destiny made me believe that the reason why my romantic impulse towards death remained unfulfilled in reality was the immensely simple fact that I lacked the necessary physical qualifications. A powerful, tragic frame and sculpturesque muscles were indispensable in a romantically noble death. Any confrontation between weak, flabby flesh and death seemed to me absurdly inappropriate. Longing at 18 for an early demise, I felt myself unfitted for it. I lacked, in short, the muscles suitable for a dramatic death. And it deeply offended my romantic pride that it should be this unsuitability that had permitted me to survive the war. that's pretty lonely and I don't think I explained like the the whole social death thing as well as they could have earlier because it's like I think it's a really important part of the illness it can sound self like victimizing if you word it wrong but um psychologically I think like everyone wants wants to feel like uh recognized this impulse is like true in like most people who do like art that involves performance like music or things like that i mean not saying that's the only case but like you know certainly that's like a not necessarily pathological trait to have in a profession that's you know about like showing a part of yourself to a lot of people and to go from kind of being excited about uh, contributing art and music and feeling like and your expression and to a community to basically like just not only not making new art not showing it to people but basically just not doing anything and I mean that's 
that's part of what you know adds the extra punch to it and that's let's just say it's so emotionally painful right i mean it's like it feels like everything you had to live for is being is being taken away from you so forcibly yeah And it's also the reason I think it's hard to talk about is you talk around it, but it's really like silence. Totally. I think I was like, I I was trying to talk about a lot of details, but it's a little bit like hard to explain to someone who hasn't become sick because it's just, I imagine that this is like very similar to how people who are like, retired and elderly sometimes feel but i mean different but similar with analogous not homologous but the thing is that those that you know not to say it's all been great for them but those people have had their i think that they've had their youth and then they their middle age and then they that experience of aging to have that out of time out of order to just kind of like be cut down when you're young really sucks a i mean it's easy to call it vanity if you haven't experienced it but specifically wanting to like be an ambitious i don't know vitalist person that i mean no one really just no one deserves this illness for sure and part of it's not like it like i think that people who are older deserve it either there's just i think a unique experience of like getting it when you're young where yeah your life is just beginning i mean it's it's certainly another order of tragedy to be struck down so intensely before you even begun to fully live in the world as an person and you're you're, you have this inchoate forming potentiality of what you could do and how you could impress yourself upon the world and things you could achieve and who you could become. And then that's all just taken away from you so violently. That's a very extreme experience of loss. Yeah. But, and then the part that, you know, like I was saying, it, it can really present or seem subtle and it's hard to talk about because it's just like, you just kind of quietly drop out of the world. It's not an explosion. It's an implosion. It's not, and it's not an it's not as much like it, it, it's sort of like just like like i said like silence like disappearing like like kind of just like i don't know becoming a ghost it's like a uh, experience of, of vanishment that's how i think of it yeah yeah like becoming a ghost like becoming or becoming like a living rune i don't know that's part of it is like the of the social death is like, like what i don't know like the death of youth and then part of it is like like i said a little bit self-inflicted where i didn't want to i really i didn't want to make this real by like talking by 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 like seeing someone in in person like a friend and kind of i want to compartmentalize the illness is this thing that i was hoping would i would figure out like that would be short lasting and I didn't want to make it real by like having a friend 
see me in this embarrassing state. And then part of it is just that, like, as a society, we don't conceptualize chronic illness so much. I mean, I know that there are recognized chronic illnesses. Like, I'm not talking about just, like, uh, you know, niche or controversial ones. I mean, like, no, I don't know, like, many autoimmune diseases, MS, you know, lupus, arthritis, you know, I guess diabetes but i with like people even if they're literally aware of i find poorly conceptualized chronic diseases and i am no exception to that like before i got sick i didn't really know i didn't really think that much about chronic diseases i thought about some like chronic terminal diseases like cancer but i, I didn't think as much about like I thought about diseases like killing you and I thought about you know those things happening to people and I thought about diseases that are you know treated and get better quickly but I did not think about any of the in-between at all and that and just like this huge unseen space where people are like kind of just suffering sometimes in silence and darkness but so i wouldn't say that i was like all that woke on it before getting sick i wasn't hostile towards it i would say that i wasn't like making like fibromyalgia or chronic lyme jokes like on <laughs> podcasts i wasn't like like the hostile towards sure, stuff like yeah. that but I, I didn't know i didn't know what it like i i I wasn't very aware of it as like a common thing. I think the other thing is that I could be wrong, but I think socially we kind of like block this out as like a possibility because it's horrifying and it, it should be horrifying. I mean, don't want to downplay it. It's like, I don't want to fear monger, but you, I mean, this should scare you some. It, it, I mean, fear serves a useful purpose within bounds, you know. I mean, I'm. I mean, it's, but, it's definitely good to be cognizant of the fact that if you're having, especially if you're going through, which I think a lot of people do, go through this experience of they're getting kind of progressively more sick, where they're like, something is off with them. They don't know what's going on. They get a flu, which they kind of never got over. You know what I mean? Like all all of these things like that. They're going through a progressive kind of breakdown. It's good to be aware, to be to be cognizant of this potential reality, because that could be yeah. this biological process, which is now unfolding. Which you have the chance to behave differently and be much more cautious and reorient yourself yeah. and potentially pull yourself out of before you go all the way down into right again the, you know the, well, the, the fucking pit or whatever yeah I, guess, I mean that's a can of worms because I'm not like there. there's a lot of stuff there's I'm not sure how much like I could have changed there's there's a few things that I could go into about like the science and the actual treatment and like caution but mainly and I'm not sure like how much you can actually change it's not I will say it's not like what I'm talking about is not like a typical like um, uh, lifestyle disease where like the main causes are lifestyle. When when you're talking about this, it's kind of like we we both are like kinds of like 
focused on biohacking our way out of like really terrible illnesses and to the extent that it, it makes it sound maybe a little more malleable than it is like for a lot of people it I mean there there are no it's not a typical lifestyle disease and you know if you ate a bit differently it's not going to change it probably if you know if you like exercise more or less I, I mean I exercise like fuck ton um, or whatever but I guess more what I'm saying about being aware of it or like you should fear it or be aware of it is like on a social level because there are things like on a society wide level on a um, bureaucratic level we could have we could do we could have done to um this could not be happening if things structurally were different to you know to yeah. make things you know to 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 make research different so this is not a thing i mean this is what be happening right now yeah yeah i mean and like i was talking about social death but it's interesting because like I've heard the term process of organized forgetting used to like talk about how like um, governments like kind of uh, memory hold aspects of like atrocities or things that are like inconvenient to like to their like uh, propaganda. It's used like it's used. I think I've heard it used with referring to like maybe authoritarian states, but. I think a lot of people would agree that this applies to liberal states too, to a lot, like the bureaucracies we have um, that deal with public health and research are pretty non-ideal for people with chronic illnesses. And yeah, I'm getting kind of far out on a limb here, but on a tangent, but because I was talking about social death, but this it's related because you know a, a bureaucracy saying this disease is serious this disease is real kind of sends out a message and like on a more like molecular level socially people hear that you know you know if if the i mean how did this kind of play out with hiv aids yeah i mean at some point like it wasn't there was a lot of social stigma because of its being um, associated with the queer community, but also like we kind of lionize a lot of people like lionize like Fauci today, but or like just like assume like public health uh, agencies are just generally the good guys against like the the crazy you know anti-vaxxers who are the bad guys, but you know and in the 1980s and with HIV AIDS, um, public health agencies um, didn't act um, until they were forced to by social pressure and they failed a lot of people. Um, So, you know, even though it's this not an organic part of the culture like whatever like kind of messaging on whether this disease is serious or whatever public health agencies send out does affect how people you know treat you or view it 
I mean, people look to that. Hugely. Hugely so. Yeah. Although I would say, like, I, I still, like, you know, would, in some kind of proposition or counterfactual, would rather people not treat the, like, my illness, like, uh, uh, well, on a personal level and, you know, make fun of it, but it receives massive funding and uh, research funding and, uh, and get a treatment. Sure. But usually these things are actually connected so that if it is stigmatized and like seen as not serious, that affects research funding and, and vice versa. If, if the public health bureaucracy is not like sending out, you know, wow, this is a really serious, you know, emergency signal then it's then people in the broader culture are kind of given permission to ignore it i don't know Totally. Yeah, that, that, that's that's so real. I mean, it's it's a real social conditioning, you know, biopolitical, sociopolitical reality in that way where it's like if you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, we see that with a kind of um, schismatic breakdown today in what's going on with our culture around disease in America, which has literally been never more more insane in in then right now and in the entirety of uh, American history, right? Where it's like um, you have the, you know, the, the deification of both sides of, um, you know, Fauci and the NIH and on the other side, you know, people who are like, uh, who, whoever, I don't know who's like the figurehead of, of um, uh, anti-vax, like pandemic, you know, whatever uh, stuff going on. Oh, that was it. like that failed CFS researcher too, which is kind of funny, extra funny. But yeah, what, 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 which yeah. one was that? The the one behind pandemic. She was like a failed ME CFS researcher on retroviruses. Oh wow, Judy, I don't even know anything about that. Judy Mikovits. Yeah, that's like deep deep lore. That that's that's some juicy. Uh, juicy deep lore right there but yeah no that yeah i mean that's the scientist i I don't know if she's the face of it but for a very brief period i mean i think that i don't think she is as like has as much cultural staying power as like fauci but yeah yeah no you're right it's like it, it it is a bizarre moment for that i mean and you know i have a lot of it's weird to see people like worship public health agencies either for doing the bare minimum or for like, you know, I don't know, disciplinary functions when there's a lot more they could do for like, just like basic research into, I don't know, like the things like long COVID. Um, because I will say like, yeah, back to like what, you know, uh, what I said about fear, like why, why, ordinary people aren't aware of these diseases until they get them. And and that was me. Um, Yeah, I got a little bit sidetracked, but this, um, yeah, I have a, I have a point here. This um, culturally, like we focus on 
acute diseases. I think we have like, like obvious, like mortality kind of deep seated, uh, weird way of dealing with mortality. And so we're good at like extending life and even at the expense of quality of life and dealing with things that are like emergencies seen as acute things. Although I would say that like with the pandemic and our response to it, maybe that tests that. I thought like, you know, general kind of um, mass breakdown of infrastructure and like, uh, you know, fall of empire moment right here. But if there is like a thing that wait like that our medical system is good at dealing with it is oh, like totally. emergencies and acute things, not not chronic illnesses and quality of life, not you know, figuring out like difficult cases of cr- complex chronic illness and, and and not yeah, even palliative care. But yeah, like it, like an emergency and uh, like like the classification of what constitutes that is interesting. I was kind of like, this could probably be a whole other episode, but I was thinking of like the, the, the weird metaphors people use in terms of like, like viewing illness as like war and like emergencies is like a state of out, outside the norm where you can like uh, suspend like, a law and you like have like some kind of total mobilization um for war and um but i mean anyway we we probably that's a whole other conversation but we probably did like the worst of both worlds or many worlds with the pandemic managed to probably piss off anti-lockdown people but also like um managed to in some ways not even do that well enough or hard enough like like china style you know that's the thing in america is like you 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 can't do that in this kind of um this kind of liberal regime where you're like uh you need a more like uh totalizing autocratic you know governmental modality to like just be like we're putting a fucking bar if you want to shut this shit down, you know what i mean i mean there were some like ostensibly liberal democracies that did better than us. I'm not talking necessarily about like in in Wuhan. I mean, but that's just because like, they pay people to stay home for the most part. Well, yeah, but that's that's yeah. I guess what you're saying is like it's hard to do that in a liberal democracy with poverty and austerity. And yeah, the only places they did that are like the richest parts of Western Europe for the most part in terms of like first. Yeah, world. I was kind of thinking of South Korea though, and like South Korea is known for like inequality and um austerity i think but maybe just in their covid response maybe maybe a, like a really specific public health thing they they were more competent i wouldn't say that especially like recently that they're known for like being like 
a great, robust welfare state. But they did handle it a bit better. But, I mean, either way, I think, like, the, the interesting thing to me is that when I heard about it, COVID, like, as someone who had been sick for a while, I, my first response was not like fear of death, but concern about like it causing worse chronic illness when I was like, yeah, essentially. Which I mean, this is the biggest disabling event in, you know, since, I mean, probably polio. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's become a bizarre partisan thing for people to be like where people are pro or don't believe in long COVID or, or, or sometimes they'll say it's, well, it's just like other viruses. And it's like, yeah, other, other infections do do that. And we should focus on that, but it's kind of a matter of scale, you know, like if I think like there's about a 25%, which is high um, amount of people who have chronic symptoms after Lyme disease, but Lyme disease is, a bacterial infection that's not transmissible among humans as far as I know and is like geographically limited yeah well there's so but it's it's definitely not like COVID level infectious no yeah and if 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 Lyme disease was fucking like spreading that much just because of the scale it it would certainly be a public health emergency just for the disabling fact even if you could like um, even if everyone was like getting doxycycline right away and like you could even if you could have less people dying like than with COVID you know I don't know totally So that's like kind of what my mind jumped to. I think it's like also a bit missed, like public health messaging thing, and also missed in terms of research funding because we focused entirely on vaccines, which don't necessarily prevent long COVID. By the way, I'm not gonna. This is not like an anti-vax thing. This well, is they, just, they also cause COVID. I mean, cause long COVID too. People, yeah, I mean, that's a controversial well, thing, but it is true that people from the spike say, protein have, have there, there, are, yeah. there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people globally who, who have been, uh, you know, afflicted with, with, with that. I mean, I, I, I guarantee that that's, that's real. Yeah, I guess I'll just say, like, I mean, I especially want to be, like, framing-wise, like, be cautious and say, like, I think they like may categorize that differently. I, they, there's definitely like kind of type of adverse vaccine reaction that isn't, you know, just like death or allergic anaphylaxis that is um, long lasting and similar to long COVID. They may have a different term for it. It definitely exists. You know, I, I was just at a very, like, I was just at a neuro ophthalmologist for an eye problem and I didn't have. COVID or 
the vaccine recently, but he said he asked about it and said that that's something he's seeing like it's you know eye issues of of all things from both covid and some of the vaccines but i was going to say like you you know whether or not the vaccines are good in general and i think like i haven't seen that many like terrible reactions from like pre-existing like healthy people vaccines and i think that it they were kind of effective uh, against like they're very effective against the original strain they're they're no longer like that effective in preventing transmission they're no longer um they are not preventing long covid uh, they have an effect on lowering hospitalization and death and if that's the only metric you're concerned with that's great um but yeah no i mean and i'm not necessarily disagreeing with you about like the adverse vaccine effects i'm just trying to like kind of frame things in like uh i'm trying to appeal to skeptical people no um, it's, it's good to be judicious i mean that th that's the thing we're like um, and um yeah so i mean i'm trying to just like think of like the barest facts i know like and because I'm, I'm not an anti-vaxxer by the way like, yeah, let, me, yeah. let, me qual let me qualify that like i'm 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 i'm, oh, not, I'm not saying you are i'm just saying like no because uh, i i'm just saying that because it, that may have sounded like i'm uh leveling a strong attack on the vaccine and talking about people being no, vaccine no, injured i don't think you call were. it or whatever I, I, but i i think a lot, like i i didn't think you were doing that i just wanted to frame that and and say like the concerns here alternately that not just like adverse effects but that it could be not enough like because long covid is the problem is is what a lot of people see as maybe even more of a problem than like the like mortality especially since the vaccine helps some with the mortality rate but it is not there are not many reputable or large-scale studies showing especially with the new variants that the vaccine helps prevent long covid are there no, no, that, that that's the thing where it's like if you're a young, relatively healthy person or whatever, it would be an aberrant case if you randomly died from from COVID if you were, especially if you're vaccinated. But it's, it's really no good measure of protection against becoming potentially, you know, hopefully not long term, but uh, in some cases, long term disabled with a new, you know, with a novel kind of chronic disease. Yeah you know, situation where, so th that's really the main thing is that there are, I mean, I don't know. It's like, um, that's one thing where, you know, not, not to put a, like a, a weirdly false kind of positive spin on, uh, this kind of discourse or whatever, but you know, in the conversations you and I have had, that's sort of one thing I've, I've, I've said, and you know, maybe you've like, uh, you know, acknowledged too or whatever in, um, in uh this capacity where you know this is definitely the moment i think of like sea change with yeah. there's too many people now with this kind of um really really serious chronic disease state going on that they're like disabled um because of covid that this is going this is like i mean me cfs was obscure for decades right like it's like there might be what you know 
I mean, I've gone back and looked at so much stuff. I'm sure you could tell me so much better where it's like, if there's that one big New York Times article a year, that was like a thing everyone was talking about for months, right? In yeah. the NBC, NBCS community, right? Like that was yeah. a really big thing. Um, you know, that that's like uh, all the discourse is, is centering around, oh, how are we being represented or not being represented well in this like, not that large profile of whatever doctor or patient uh, yeah. in this situation. And with long COVID stuff, it's like now every single day, if you just Google long COVID in terms of mainstream media stuff, there's, you know, not even, I mean, more than dozens of, of, of articles every day. And there's huge features multiple times a week. Uh, yeah. Globally on this level where it's like uh, the, the mass awareness or mass consensus again you know this is an interesting thing because there is a real political valence to this stuff where like you know some of my uh more right wing shall we say friends particularly like very online people's like uh you know i can't really discourse with them about this stuff because they're like long covid is fake and gay you know what i mean they're they're, 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 that that that's still not real to them but uh to people who are um who are not in that space of like whatever that continuity is all the way from like the most extreme right-wing conspiracy i mean the funny thing about that is like like there there are a lot of like the liberal response to that is not that dissimilar in some ways it it depends on like the obviously like there are a lot of like (laughs) liberal people or like left-lib people have actually gotten long covid and care about it but just to talk about the politicization, the interesting thing is that, like, is that there are some liberals who want to downplay long COVID because they want to kind of turn this into a simple policy thing of like the vaccine is enough. And if long COVID wasn't a, like an issue, it, the vaccine probably would be enough because it does lower like mortality and it does lower hospitalization you're never going to get mortality to zero but like the problem is like this mass disabling event but that that's inconvenient for like the governance that's like you know okay we got you the vaccine so like get it and go back to work or you know it's just that, like, it's, it's like the, the liberal... handshake me in between like the like right wing imaginary it's it's simultaneously like a curse and a blessing that's become like politicized because like it depends on the, i i think it's absurd that there are right-wing people who are simultaneously like watch out for seed oils environmental toxins you're right you which know. you know i mean yeah i agree with watch out for environmental toxins i'm not a particular fan of polyunsaturated fats but and people try and downplay it in that end for a few reasons. One of them is because it became like just like politicized in a very contingent way. But another is because like they think that if you if you kind of like have enough vitality from like exercise or like nutrition, um, you'll be all good with it. And that that's an interesting uh, thing to test. But I will say like you know I. I know so many goddamn people that are like fairly conventionally healthy that have gotten 
just struck down by various illnesses, including COVID. We don't really like live in a just world. I mean, it, it definitely could be worse if you're more unhealthy, but it's not. Yeah, I don't know. I think that might be a little bit where that's coming from. I mean, like, there is no amount of vitamin D that's going to totally prevent this. I mean, that's which is and, like a, it's a left-right divide in terms of like um, you know the causal the causal nature of um, of like human failure and also the um, like moral implications of I mean it's like the you know just in a in an oversimplified way it's like a, the left you know victim kind of um, sense of like the individual is you know exists under many laws and forces and is the victim of these structural realities and like uh, the identification of like yourself as being as being like being victimized by the world versus like no rugged individualist i am strong vitalist triumphalist sense of um you're not gonna yeah. be you're, you're a weakling basically if you're right. by poverty or the flu back to that it's like do you really think like just like um like to those people do you really think like that you know some lifting and like you know seed oil avoidance and like nutrition is going to like undo like whatever has been like done via like environmental toxins and like yeah novel environmental toxins and pollutants that have totally like wrecked our like immune systems and which is the case for everyone in the last like i don't know like half century or so or even longer because that's something where like the just world theory falls a little flat unless you think like that your your karma led you to be born in like like this specific like age of sickness and and stuff but it's like um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't take care of your health, but I'm saying like it, it's totally naive to think that 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 this is something that only um, pre-existing like sickly people get. And that's that's my main point. Totally. Um, for that reason, and and even if you think that like all these things like environmental toxins are like prominent factors in health i would think that you'd see that that means that one has to be a bit more careful most of these things are those things like environmental toxins are immunosuppressant it would mean that you would want to be more careful about like um things like you know a, a particularly nasty virus i mean it's an interesting proposition to say you know like how would this work in a like totally healthy 
population, but we don't have that. And just because you lift doesn't mean you are that. Like <laughs> we're talking about like health, yeah. like that goes like, we're talking about stuff we've barely begun to study. Like I've covered on other episodes a little bit, but about like environmental toxins and health and pollutants that kind of fucks up the like just world idea because it's a individualist idea because it's like uh, i do support people taking steps to make their health better but like it's like you're swimming upstream and that's all you can do it's not like i'm telling anyone to give up but the vain like naivete to think like you can't be sick because you're not fat because you're you know because you don't drink or smoke and don't eat crap is pretty pretty big i don't know totally yeah i mean there, there are so many people who are am i being too like, harsh no no I, I i don't think it's i think that's not even harsh enough what distinguishes the heroic from the decadent death What difference there might be resolves itself into the presence or absence of the idea of honor, which regards death as something to be seen, and the presence or absence of the formal aesthetic of death that goes with it. In other words, the tragic nature of the approach to death and the beauty of the body going to its doom. Thus, where a beautiful death is concerned, men are condemned to inequalities and degrees of fortune commensurate with the inequalities and degrees of fortune bestowed on them by fate at their birth. Though this inequality is obscured nowadays by the fact that modern man is almost devoid of the desire of the ancient Greeks to live beautifully and die beautifully. Why should a man be associated with beauty only through a heroic, violent death? In ordinary life, Society maintains a careful surveillance to ensure that men shall have no part in beauty. Physical beauty in the male, when considered as an object in itself without any intermediate agent, is despised. And the profession of the male actor, which involves constantly being seen, is far from being accorded true respect. A strict rule is imposed where men are concerned. It is this. A man must, under normal circumstances, never permit his own objectivization. He can only be objectified through the supreme action, which is, I suppose, the moment of death. The moment when, even without being seen, the fiction of being seen and the beauty of the object are permitted. Of such is the beauty of the suicide squad, which is recognized as beauty not only in the spiritual sense, but by men in general in an ultra-erotic sense also. Moreover, serving as agent in this case is a heroic action of an intensity beyond the resources of the ordinary mortal, so that objectivization without an agent is not possible here. However close mere words may get to this moment of supreme action that acts as intermediary for beauty, they can no more overtake it than a flying body can attain the speed of light.
talking of like on this just world level or whatever there's so many people where it's like i mean i know bodybuilders that have got you know that have like that are like very like that have been very strong like that and young that just totally like almost overnight just get struck down with mecfs can't exercise like bed bound horizontal sensory sensitivity neurological symptoms and, and also like postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome which is something where people have autonomic dysfunction or like getting like if if they're upright their like heart races so much that it's pathological like more than the normal increase and that they're not getting the right blood flow to their brain and stuff but i mean it's kind of like i wasn't aware of chronic illness before i got sick beyond like very abstract like surface breathing our our system isn't prepared for it it isn't like it's it's built to extend life but it's like in the very like literal barest sense of what life means not in the fullest sense but it's not very good at 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 dealing with chronic illnesses and and then on top of that like something i barely even touched on is like i said i i'm pretty sure that the kind of epidemic of chronic diseases we've had before covid even which definitely won't be helped by covid is caused a lot by environmental toxin exposure and inhaled and it like ambient toxins so i'm not just talking about things you could easily avoid in food like i mean that's certainly something to look into but i'm i'm talking about stuff that basically everyone has i mean like forever chemicals in their blood like pfas or whatever so uh, that's why i guess i find the idea like that now i find the idea that you just although i probably had it implicitly in my mind that you can't just like get struck down by this so naive specifically i mean that's probably a good people who believe that that's probably a like good people to try and you know address like definitely not preaching to the choir but um you know maybe i don't know how interested listening there but like definitely like if you think that you know environmental toxins and all this um is a problem if you're like looking at some like holistic view of health that should make you not like less concerned for covid because you're talking about the um, stage has been set for some right. total decimation of i mean right like i think, I think microbiome like doctors doctors call it like you know the terrain and then the pathogen like exactly. the, the terrain has already been kind of like messed up carved out like degraded by things that you really haven't had that much control over that's sort and, of what i was talking about earlier in terms of like being aware of like if your health is kind of failing for for right years. okay I think yeah that, maybe i miss maybe i misunderstood no 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 not at all yeah, that, that's I, just like, like um i meant to say it's not really like agential in a simple way like oh i could like have like beat like no, it's, it's just like if, if you uh, no, no, I mean, here's the th- here's the sad thing. It's like if you're in this process of slipping into this state of whatever kind of holistic um, biological dysfunction is occurring here, it's going to happen to you. But it's some pride before the fall shit. Or like if you if you are like 
your health is failing for a you long time it by like pushing it you're pushing gonna make it way worse uh, th- th- that's kind of what denial, i'm saying yeah yeah you're gonna Absolutely. make it you're gonna make it way worse i mean that, that, that that's what happened point. to me and that's what happened to i think a lot of other people is like if you are my health was kind of failing for a while before i got covid and i was gone at the end i was going to the doctor you know what i mean even i was like i was getting tests for stuff because i'm like i'm feeling really really weird and i got a, a horrible flu horrible flu which I, I basically never got over and then after yeah. that i was like you know what i mean so that's the thing that's what i would say to people on that level is if you um if you have an inkling you know what i mean of like this kind of dysfunction yeah. going on with you in that way it's like just be be careful if you have the ears to even hear but that's something that you yeah. do because if you are just not in that place where you can even hear that which probably I, I wasn't and many people aren't like they're, they're going to, they need to go through this to, you know, to, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, a lot of the times on a human level, people need to like experience ruin themselves to understand what they should yeah. have done differently. But I think that there, there are people, I don't know. I talk to people on, you know, the internet and stuff who about these kinds of things in the various groups, which you and I are both, both in or have been in for these kinds of, um, things with like uh mecfs and and uh long covid is like uh i talk to people where they're like oh yeah you know like uh where they're, they're not realizing you know if, if they get reinfected again or something or they already have whatever situation going on that this could be you know the straw kind of that breaks yeah them you know, the camel's back or whatever. So th- th- that, yeah. that's the thing. Which, which that level. You, you had an experience with that like recently, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I got, re- I mean, I got reinfected with COVID where like that. After having really, made like a, a lot of progress. I made like a huge, huge amount of progress and you know, who knows, maybe I'll, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll, I'll, I'll rebound to, uh, to where I was again. Cause it's, it's not nearly as bad as it was. Yeah. Maybe first time where i was fully not just bed bound but i i couldn't i I couldn't walk long distance and you had heart issues i think i had yeah really really serious heart issues i i still don't know whether i had a heart attack that 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 remains to be seen i haven't done the medical investigation necessary i like it's a it's a whole it's a whole long story i mean that's kind of like time sensitive right you'd need like blood work for troponins I did. I, I got. I got. I got a troponin test, but um, it was too long after the fact. And I guess there are other measures which you would take to kind of see possibly yeah. if you had a heart attack with having imaging done, um, right. to see if there's structural cardiac MRI. Yeah. yeah. So, not even just an MRI with like an ultrasound and all this other stuff. There's other things they wanted me to do with that, but uh, to be honest, I haven't yeah. followed up on them because I. You know, it's a financial situation. It's a stressful thing. Whatever. There, there, there's so many things. It's also um, just like, yeah, like even if you did, like, I don't know, state what difference does that make for all the tests? Well, yeah, I was also gonna say it's just like you. Sometimes it does make a difference, but you just run out of energy or like pursue like experimental treatments or like detailed testing.
Yeah, but so, just like, like I like what, uh, like after getting COVID recently, like how how much we give a picture of like the functional change. In I detail. mean, I mean, before this, I was like, uh, I, I was yeah. So I mean, I, I was I was really really sick with um, uh, with long COVID. I I was not as sick as you. At my worst, I was definitely not as sick as um as you have been, but I would say I was probably one step behind in terms of I was, I was heading, it seemed like rapidly towards uh, the place that, that you were at where um, I was fully bed bound. Basically I, uh, I didn't, I didn't have um, such extreme sound sensitivity uh, that I, you know, or. Um, oh yeah. I didn't talk about that as much. That's like more in the past three years, but yeah. That's a fucking that's that's a serious thing, and you know visual sensitivity to to stimuli. I, I I could still like listen to to music, all of that kind of stuff, as long as it was quiet and whatever. But um, other than that, I was basically bed bound in a dark room, couldn't walk long distances in very 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 extreme pain. Just like walk to the kitchen, I watch walk to the bathroom. Like. Basically, yeah. And in, in, in the beginning, it was like I I I would you know I, I would basically fall I'll fall over. There'd be moments where I was too weak to, to fully stand up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
not not the the time anyone wants to to, to have you know in, in their life or whatever but um yeah i i made like a huge that lasted for a very very long time in terms of like the scale of how long long COVID has even been a thing like it lasted the better part of two years and then i started rapidly recovering and i i did a bunch of things i, I don't I want, I want detail the, the full list of things that i did but um i don't know if, if anyone's like uh, of course, you can message either of us or whatever. But if anyone listens to this and wants to like talk about that stuff, of course, and we'll probably do follow up too. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I, we'll probably do. Kinda... Uh, well, I think I think this will probably be a series of of of, of yeah. things that we do here because I think there's a lot of, of stuff for us to say. I, I took some some various intense experimental experimental medications, uh, repurposed things. I took an HIV medication, um, which is based on the idea that viral fragments dead viral proteins to be specific of the covid virus are tr- are latently triggering the immune system causing mm-hmm. this in- yeah. autoimmune inflammatory cascade basically which i mean mapped pretty pretty much right on for what what was going on with me um and uh yeah so i i made what seemed like uh, a semi-miraculous recovery i don't want to say that i was even close to normal but i was able to like do light exercise again and i was like my my food sensitivities and uh i i had what we're talking about before um more oh, static sure. uh, like yeah, yeah um stuff going on and uh mcas which is like a mast cell activation yeah. thing is another 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 uh, another thing i had going on which were both pretty bad in terms of like uh my my chemical sensitivities and food sensitivities were i was i was basically just in a state of like uh allergic shock on a very regular basis and all of these things were starting to rapidly dissipate in a way which was uh they were still there and I, I would describe myself as being quite sick in terms of my normal my normal previous self but uh, i went from being bed bound and suffering horribly to it seeming like there was a very real chance of recovery and i i, I still a do full recovery yeah a full recovery yeah which i, I still totally think is possible for um yeah. for for me now to be honest but um i uh yeah i got because just because um particularly when i got COVID again uh i you know if it was like as bad as it was before or worse then i'd be like oh damn like i'm i'm really it's it, it's a wrap for me but um it uh this time yeah it for me it's been everything that was going on with me before ha- has um not everything but 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 a lot of things have flared up again but more than anything it's the neurological stuff for me the um exercise intolerance is definitely kind of muscle weakness joint problems and things so you're like that back are, to bed bound or more like, like, de- like definitely not bed bound definitely not bed bound i'm i'm yeah. um it's for me more than anything the problem is massive pain and really really bad um cognitive function that that's well, like i i can like, walk around like pain or like like joint it, pain or? um no for, for for me it's it's a uh, it's basically nerve pain in my neck and head that that for me has been the most uh extreme thing throughout this entire the neurological stuff has been the, the main thing for me have you ever time. gotten a neuropathy test like a i have nerve fibers yeah yeah i have yeah i have i've i like um which was which is helpful um, I had severe nerve damage. I don't want to say severe, but I had somewhat severe nerve damage in my left hand, and I'm left-handed, and I'm, you know, guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, et cetera, whatever. So, I my my I couldn't use my fine motor skills 
for quite a long time. I couldn't clamp my hand fully or um, do any complicated movements with my left hand for a very long time. But uh, that's that's returned. Um, I'm having some more issues with uh, that's tied to my neck, very much tied to the function of my extremities, very much tied to um, my neck. So, yeah, I'll I'll say that uh, it definitely set me back very substantively um again yeah. to, to 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 get infected again where it you know it, it's that thing where like you know who knows maybe it's just it's just like once you're in this place of um of dysregulate dysregulation you're really very vulnerable to like stacking on various yeah. kinds of injuries in this way where it's right. like there is a threshold of i don't know exactly what it is it's like there is certainly a threshold that one reaches uh it yeah. seems like where it's, it's hard to um get back to homeostasis. To, to, to homeostasis really you know what i mean it's like extremely uh, hard yeah it's like yeah. it's like i just wanted to like really quick because the point point of this episode was less to like go over like uh like past history may have covered it in both in like the illness in general and in my history but like since we're just trying to kind of like and give a picture of this to like people who uh, might be tuning for the first time and don't like understand the illness i talked about the first part of the illness i kind of did a speed run of that like not every symptom not every detail but like the first couple years after i got lyme i continued to get worse i ended up like having becoming bed bound more like fully bed bound or almost fully bed bound but at, at one point i was you know like having trouble um like crawling to the bathroom and back with like and my heart rate would be racing for a ton of after even just that like regardless of like the whatever semantics on like bed like very very ill and um then having like additional spinal issues which isn't necessarily a normal part of MECFS but the thing about this is like we're finding uh, people are finding all these comorbidities of MECFS and and long COVID and I wouldn't say there's a hundred percent overlap with like long COVID and MECFS it's just more of a Venn diagram that's not quite a circle but there's so much overlap that solving one would probably solve the other vice versa and also but there, are, it does seem like there are some symptoms that are specific to. There's a ton of overlap. I mean, there's so many people that have post-exertional malaise, or what it's called when you like crash metabolically after exercise, like an abnormal response to exercise, not a healthy response. So yeah, uh, besides like the normal MECFS symptoms, I talked about the fatigue, brain fog, like uh, post-exertional malaise already. It became worse in like 2018, 19. I had these spinal issues, had like what you're talking about, mast cell activation syndrome and environmental sensitivities, sort of like allergy, but it's, it's, it's more, it's different than allergy in that it's like, it's not just histamine release and it's not just to like one thing that you have a pre existing sensitivity to. It's more like to explain it really quickly, like to, listeners it's more like the idea that your innate immune system can have a generally over inflammatory response to like a variety of environmental 
triggers that it isn't even necessarily allergic to like which makes it not really predictable like you don't have to have an IgE uh, positive allergy test to have these kinds of reactions and, and, and that's what makes it kind of strange but that one at least it seems to be more like validated by blood work or seeing it as serious I don't know like it, it depends on the doctor by by doctors and researchers I mean I, mean, I guess in that there, there are few there are not very many people saying that that I've seen saying like that's psychosomatic because you can see like the tryptase and histamine levels in the blood and the reaction sometimes physically but I guess rashes like, and all that stuff I guess the skeptics might say oh it's overdiagnosed or it's like but but I've more rarely than with MECFS seen I haven't seen as many people saying like it's like fully psychosomatic or anything um, oh, that, that's like yeah the yeah the, I, I, maybe I mean, it's harder to argue that with that but that'd be very my, hard my to argue. point is that like that a lot of people with MECFS I still think it's useful to talk about that disease it's a it's a real disease develop these comorbidities that we don't it's kind of diagnostically there's some semantics about like is this an additional part of MECFS or is this a whole other disease because there's so much overlap what we're talking about is like a, a cluster of related syndromes and my point in saying like those ones are taken more seriously is just to point out that uh you know at some point when people get as sick as i am and they develop as much comorbidities they're not necessarily like seen as like you know psychosomatically ill as like as much as like someone who only has an MECFS diagnosis and the symptoms and that's like very uh cold comfort you know it's like you get worse and you get some like you worsen enough to develop things that finally people see as like very like obvious illnesses I mean there was definitely like as soon as I got diagnosed with MECFS even when I was moderately ill there's definitely some really whack immune stuff immune labs and this was even more extreme with the mast cell activation syndrome diagnosis that I got later and, and then like and then what came after which is like the spinal damage which I just want to talk about because like just for people that are skeptics about this illness you they, you I don't know you just don't get the, I've heard of like psychosomatic panic attacks you know so meaning like your psyche causes your heart to raise temporarily adrenaline to dump I have not heard of this leading to like ligament damage and, and stuff your that spine like your literally degrading yeah, and collapsing exactly. so at this point like when I got that diagnosis it was like this a horrible thing and at the same time I was like well finally this may A be something treatable and B be something like doctors are finally taken seriously although it was like definitely somewhat and that's probably why I like got approved for disability um on the first try which is rare for people with just like MECFS diagnosis but yeah maybe the connective tissue and spinal problems were the thing that cinched it but it's also not always 
like neatly treatable in that like we don't know what caused the spine damage I, I have all these theories gone into them on other episodes like that you know mass cell activation and inflammation from environmental causes or even infections can cause a lot of the spine damage even if you aren't born with a congenital like spine problem those things are known to damage ligament so my point is just like not i've gone into like the full picture on previous episodes i'm just trying to speed run this a little bit for the listeners so like you understand like um a little bit of the seriousness of the diseases we're talking about because it's good to have a picture of like this is a this is a grave situation right this this is not like oh i'm um i have a cold in bed this is like sickness unto death you are at death's door every day type situation Psychologists should bethink themselves before putting down the instinct of self-preservation as the cardinal instinct of an organic being. A living thing seeks above all to discharge its strength. Life itself is will to power. Self-preservation is only one of the indirect and most frequent results thereof. In short, here as everywhere else, let us beware of superfluous teleological principles, one of which is the instinct of self-preservation. We owe it to Spinoza's inconsistency. It is thus, in effect, that method ordains, which must be essentially economy of principles.